0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. We have a very special guest joining us today, so I will dispense with my usual philosophical reflections, other than to remind us all that elections have consequences. And because of the steady, long-term political work in Georgia and other places, but in Georgia that resulted in flipping control of the Senate, a $2 trillion relief package is signed by Biden. And among many other desperately needed parts of the package, the legislation is projected to cut child poverty in half. So everything we all did in 2020 to take back our country mattered. And the results of that are now paying off in truly amazing fashion. We should all really pause to feel very, very good about that as a political accomplishment. And in looking forward, as I wrote in a recent column the Nation, the next step to fundamentally transforming U.S. politics is turning Texas blue. And our guest today has done as much to make that happen as any candidate in Texas in decades. So I'm very excited to have that conversation. And for that conversation, I'm joined as always by my co host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene, do you want to introduce today's guest?
1: Hey, Steve. With pleasure. I'm really excited for today's guest. And while he likely needs no introduction, We will give one for our listeners, just to remind everybody. Beto O'Rourke is a former Texas congressman who represented the state's 16th district in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2013 to 2019. In 2018, he ran for a Senate seat against incumbent Republican Senator Ted Cruz and made Texas history by earning the most votes ever won by any Democrat who ran in Texas in a statewide election. That epic race was also the closest any Democratic candidate had come to winning a U.S. Senate seat in Texas in 30 years. O'Rourke, or as pretty much everyone calls him, Beto, (laughs) lost that race by only 2.6 percentage points. In his prior lives, he worked at an art moving company. He had a short babysitting stint and he worked as a proofreader for a publishing company. He was also a co-founder of an internet services and software company. In 2019, as we will all remember, even though that seems like kind of a long time ago, but he did run for president. And after that, he went on to register thousands of voters in Texas to help defeat Donald Trump. Welcome, Beto.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you both.
1: We appreciate you making the time, and um,
0: you know, as I, I think, that our respective careers, but I've kind of circled each other to a certain extent. I like conditioned to Ginny Goldman who hooked us up for this. We've been uh, partners and supported with for a long time. My my nephew Chris lives in Houston, Pearland, actually, and he was part of it. He's a, a financial advisor at the Wells Fargo Advisors. If anybody needs good advice, they can contact Chris. But he had a uh, little small radio internet show. Um, called Equiliberty on the uh, Synergy Radio Network. And then you appeared on that show, Veto, when you were running for governor, actually. And I was like, this guy is everywhere. And then in preparing for this interview, I just dis- discovered that uh, Jesse Jackson connection, right? I mean, I dedicated my book in part to Jesse Jackson. It was a transformative experience in my life in terms of going through that, being connected to the civil rights movement, seeing the power of a movement, social justice and electoral politics, And so I discovered that your father was the co-chair for Jesse's campaign in Texas, actually. So I really uh, was excited to see that. And that actually kind of leads, I think, to my first question is actually, can you share with us how you decided to get into politics? What was it that really motivated you, moved you to decide to take that plunge and to get involved in in, in that kind of work?
2: You mentioned my dad was very involved in politics. He was a Democratic County Commissioner in El Paso County, and then he was the county judge, which for those unfamiliar with Texas, the county judge is the chief executive of that, you know, of that region. In in El Paso's case, it's a metro county that has about a million people now and is connected to Ciudad Juarez on the Mexican side of the border, forming the largest binational community anywhere in this hemisphere. So growing up in that household, you know, I was Six, when my dad was first elected to the to the commissioner's court um, and into my early teen years, it, it just was what my dad did. It was what we talked about at the dinner table. And in the heyday, the last heyday of the Democratic Party in the state of Texas, when Governor Mark White came to town, came to El Paso, he'd come to our house, I'd get to see the governor and be there and listen to him at the press conference. But the most electrifying experience of my youth was Jesse Jackson coming to El Paso, Texas, and coming to our home, meeting with my dad, which uh, was amazing in in its own right. But then hearing him speak Mm -hmm. at the University of Texas at El Paso, um, the most extraordinary speaker I'd I'd ever heard and probably have ever heard since then, um, the most exciting presidential candidate who was able to step out of the... You know performative you know safe for tv theatrics and all the phrases that had lost all power and punch he, he spoke in a language that was outside and a part of all that and even as a, a kid you know uh it, it it connected with me it landed right. and it set him apart from everyone else that i'd ever seen in politics or, or running so all of that probably was contributing to my decision ultimately to get involved in civic life in El Paso as a business owner, as uh, Charlene mentioned, and then as um, a city council rep back in, in 2005. So that that very much had a, an, an influence on me.
0: So when you first decided to run in 2005, what was that thought process and what propelled you in that direction?
2: Steve, I, I had started an online newspaper in, in the late 90s in El Paso called Stanton Street, and we were desperate to tell the stories of our community, in part because we knew that El Paso and other border cities were so often misunderstood, if not uh, maligned or demonized or vilified. I mean, we knew Trump was coming, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the way that people talked about uh, how scary or dangerous El El Paso is, even though it was the safest city in America and you had to wall it off or secure it or lock it down. And we wanted to tell the story of our community and the pride that we felt in it, and also just how exciting and amazing this place that most people in America had never visited really is. Uh, From that, covering city council, uh, covering the the growth and development of the community, wasn't too big of, of a leap to think about serving in public office. And instead of just writing about it and covering it, maybe being at the table when decisions were made about you know, what was next for El Paso. And so I you know ran against the incumbent mayor Pro Tem, knocked on doors you know uh, all day, many days uh, in a row, many months strung together, and pulled off this um, really kind of this upset victory and found myself in my early 30s uh, serving on the El Paso City Council. And, and still you know, looking back on that from 15 or 16 years, Still one of the most amazing jobs I ever had because it's the, the most direct connection to the constituents you want to serve. There's there's no there's no buffer, right? Like if you're right, trashed right. and you get picked up, you're calling me directly. If yeah. your neighbor's dog is barking too loud, you're showing up in my office. So I, I love that. And and I, I miss those days on the on the city council.
0: Yeah. No, I was actually on the on the school board in San Francisco back in the day and it was a similar deal. And I ran, you know, knocked on doors as the way to actually make it happen, of course. <laughs> I'm of an age where our tech was a Mac plus and a 20 meg hard drive. Uh, (laughs) But it's that direct contact and you walk and you go into the, down the street, someone's like pulling you aside. I want to talk to you about my kid's school and whatnot. So it was a very immediate type of experience. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. And and you don't get that as much in Congress. I mean, we held town hall meetings every month and I, I felt like I was very accessible But it's a different level altogether when you're representing 750,000 people instead of, you know, um, you know, 100,000 people or 80,000 people. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, it's it's something that I wish we we um, stressed and encouraged more people to consider, Mm -hmm. because I just I think it's such a fundamentally important Job that um, is a lot of glory for Congress and Senate and other positions, C- city council, school board, water board. Uh, that's where so much of the action is.
1: Yeah, and I'm sorry that we missed that in your bio. I mean, but I'm so glad that we were able to touch upon it because um, what a transformative time in your life and on your journey, in your career. Uh, as I mentioned in sharing your bio earlier, I'm going to pivot to talking about your Senate race in 2018. Uh, again, it was epic and many of us still remember you know just how epic it was and historic you ran on a really innovative campaign strategy against one Ted Cruz most candidates usually focus on what's called the triangle in Texas that's Houston Dallas Austin San Antonio then they swing through the valley and stop in El Paso you chose to visit all 254 counties in Texas and you live streamed a lot of your experience including uh, doing laundry and skateboarding and just stuff you were doing in your daily life. What was your rationale with breaking from convention and taking that approach?
2: Charlene, we really made a uh, virtue of a necessity. We, we started with no name ID, no money, and uh, beyond you know, immediate family members, no hope that, that we were gonna be successful. It's <laughs> a lot and to so, go on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, what, what do you have to lose? Uh, and so, you know, live streaming the town hall meeting in Fort Stockton, and you know, uh, having you know the forty people who happen to be tuning in listen to the twelve people who happen to be there talk about the issues that are most important to them. You know, and it's healthcare. And there's a woman who stands up and gets in my face, and she's pissed off at President Obama, and she's pissed off at Democrats because she can't get healthcare, because. Um, she earns too much to be eligible for Medicaid in Texas. She doesn't earn enough to be able to afford private insurance. She feels screwed and she, she's going to let me have it. And everyone in the world can see that. But what was also so powerful is there's this young doctor sitting next to her and he steps up and he's like, look, uh, I, I would love to, to see you and to take care of you. And I accept Medicaid and, and Medicare, and, and maybe there's a way we can, we can make this work. Um, and we learned that that doctor's there in that medically underserved community because his medical school was paid for by the county and the state of Texas, who made an investment in him in order to get him back to his community to see people just like this woman. And, and then to be able to explain, look, if we expanded Medicaid, uh, if we expanded the Affordable Care Act, or if we pursued universal health care so that you didn't have to worry about this, then I don't care if you're mad at me or the other party or anyone else. I just want you and your family to be okay. So having that conversation and your ability to watch that in real time, you're interested in that subject too. And you know, you might, you know, uh, type some comments in on the live stream. I might read them later. I might respond to them. It just was a way to bring everyone in. And what started with 12 people at the Dickies barbecue in Fort Stockton with 40 people watching by the end of that campaign you would have thousands of people come to these town hall meetings and tens or sometimes hundreds of thousands of people watching the engagement and, you know, talking with Steve about the school board or the city council, you know, getting this kind of direct democracy and direct access. um, You know, it, it started out as a necessity just to be able to connect with anyone at all in an underfunded campaign, but it really became, I think, transformative, not just to our chances in the race, but hopefully towards how campaigns should be run and how accountable candidates and office holders should be. And then to do all of that without accepting a dime of PAC money or special interest or corporate donations and raising more than any Senate campaign had raised in, in U S history at that point, this is before the this most recent cycle shows that, that doing the right thing can, can have its own reward. Um, And, and so, you know, I'd love to say that there was some genius behind that. It wasn't. It's just what we had to do in the moment. But we benefited from an extraordinary number of good people, volunteers, staff, folks I'll never meet, and and didn't get a chance to meet during that. Who all came together to produce those results that you talked about.
0: I'm curious in terms of how you, uh, you, you you know, you used you know live streaming and video and very improvisational around it. What was your Technological comfort level, right? I mean, th- those of us of a certain generation have had to try to keep up with these stuff. I mean, we I had a, we did a podcast a few years ago with Cory Booker, and then my niece um, Leah is a big uh, fan of his. She's in college now; she's in high school at the time. And so, afterwards, this was when Snapchat was really taking it off. So he does a little Snapchat video. And then he's mocking me because I had no clue how to actually use Snapchat. So you seemed very comfortable with the tech tools. And so I'm curious, did you use them beforehand? or Did you learn the campaign went along? How'd you kind of uh, master that?
2: It's really a mix. I, I was steeped in connection through technology from, you know, growing up in the, the, the 80s. I was in sixth or seventh grade and my parents bought me an Apple IIe mm. and a 300 baud per second modem. And it was my ability to connect with the rest of the world, and as as you know back then, you're, you're literally one connection at a time. It's whatever right. that phone line would support. Now it's it's really unlimited. So I I I was used to that concept and that idea. I saw how you could apply it across Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or or other platforms. But um, you know I I yeah again I wish there was some great plan that we had. It really kind of dumb lucked our way into a lot of this stuff and and kind of stumbled into this latent audience that that was there because again the first you know the first live streams you know it's you know six people watching 20 people Mm -hmm. watching and the the discipline i guess that we showed in continuing to live stream everything the really critically important town hall meeting where we learned a lot about the given needs in a community that would transition seamlessly into me getting a haircut Mm-hmm. or eating dinner at Waterburger and just the conversations that we would have in, in the truck. Um, we just brought everyone into every aspect of the campaign. So both the stuff that is typically cut and produced for your consumption after it's been checked with the lawyers and everybody, and the stuff that's just, you know literally us, you know, eating a hamburger in, in the van afterwards. you just you got it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so for some, it's too much. for, for some, it was, it was an interesting, peek behind the curtain on how do these things work? What, what What's it really like to run one of these campaigns?
1: While you were on the road that year, Beto, you were asked at a public forum, and this was sort of a famous pivotal moment, you were asked at that pub- public forum about NFL players like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem and whether that gesture was unpatriotic. And not only did you cite several historic accounts of peaceful protests, but you said, and I'll quote, I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights anytime, anywhere, in any place. How did you come to understand the history of race and racism in this country? And how did you come to terms with what your role is, um, as, especially as a white male in this country, in addressing racial injustice?
2: I, I don't know that I can say that I've, I've come to understand. I, I think I'm in the process constantly of understanding and learning and, and listening and Isabel Wilkerson talks about a, a radical empathy, you know, trying to employ a, a radical empathy to learn the history of this country and, and learn about the experiences today in this moment of my fellow Americans. Um, and, and there's, for me, uh, there's been no better way to do that than to be present in the places across this state. Steve mentioned 254 uh, counties, And you talked about that typically, you know, it's this triangle that, that candidates move in in Texas because it's just so big. There's so many people, 30 million of us. You know, how could you cover all that ground by by going everywhere and, and not just to the obvious places? I learned so much. I'll give you an example. I was in a part of East Texas, uh, small town hall meeting. Again, you know, maybe uh, 20 people total are, are there. It's in like a little convenience store slash, you know, sandwich shop. People are coming in and out as, as we're talking. And I give my pitch. I say, hey, but I want to listen to you. Tell me what's going on in the community. And they said, well, what are you going to do about the Confederate monument here in our community? And I said, well, as with all Confederate monuments, I think that should be taken down. Um, I don't think there's any, any role or place for that in our country today. And they said, no, 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 you, you, do, you don't understand the question. What are you going to do about the Confederate monument they're putting up right now? In, in other words, this was not a debate about taking something down. That was put up fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. It was about something that is being put up right now. uh, At that point in 2018, in in Trump's America, but in the America that preceded Trump, that that wasn't his doing. I think he may have given some more open permission to folks to to do that. So, would I have known that safe in my home in El Paso? Absolutely not. Um, Going to Jasper, Texas, and and meeting with people there. Who, who had lived through some, some really extraordinarily um, horrifying experiences and, and still felt like there was a level of intimidation that made political participation unsafe. Um, and, uh, and they wanted me to know about but they wanted me to be there present, listen, and, and understand that. There are too many examples to cite, but what, what hit home for me is that you'll never know, and you'll never come close to knowing, if you don't show up and, and if you don't show that basic respect of listening to people about what is happening in, in their lives, that, that Charlene, for me, that, that was the, 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 the path to greater understanding. And it's one that I'm still on, whether I'm a candidate or not, whatever I'm doing in my life, I, I think that's so essential. If this country's ever going to make it that all of us set ourselves on, on some kind of path like that.
0: So I want to follow up on that in terms of what you've, Basically, learned about what it what is the potential, and then how to actually win over the support of white people in a very racially divided country. And I think that one of the things that Trump did is he made it so you can't avoid the issues. This is very much the, These are the flashpoint issues. You're, at, you know, on the Paso, down on the border, making immigration. What kind of country are we? And I would argue a lot of the struggle within Democratic politics is this impulse to distance the the campaigns and the party from the most intense racial inequality and injustice that's in the country, and the downplay it and then try to find common ground and let people know. So I get painted on one side of that conversation, and I think I probably, I don't know, exaggerate it, but I I want to make clear that we have to confront these issues. But you were, you know as successful as anybody's been in Texas for a long time, has winning over, you know, uh, uh, white support. I mean, you had 34%, Hillary had uh, 26%. So what insights do you have around how to win over a larger sector of the white community? And what's your sense of the potential there?
2: I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, I just watched President Johnson's speech to, to Congress, which was given on the 15th of March, 1965, about the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. And what's so amazing to me is he's giving this speech. Let's say that every member of the House and Senate were there. That's 535, only six of whom are are black. Um, So it's an all-white audience, Mm -hmm. many of them in the South, many of whom are many representing communities or states in the South, many of whom he's going to lean on probably literally um, (laughs) to to vote against their, their own political interest and maybe end their political careers. And then he famously predicts, with, with some prescience that, you know, Democrats will lose the South for a generation for, uh, for doing this, for, for voting for the, the Voting Rights Act. But when he begins, he immediately turns to John Lewis. I, I don't know if he ever names him, but he says, you know, a week ago in, in Selma, Alabama, we witnessed something that was on par with Lexington, Concord from the Revolutionary War, and Appomattox. Like, that's his through line. He's like, wow. this great moment that that established a country based on this ideal of freedom and the pursuit of liberty and justice, then Appomattox, which, you know, at least militarily uh, settled the issue uh, of, of the Civil War. Although I, I, I take your point that I think you've been really powerful in making that, that much of that is not settled yeah. um, today. And then he talks about the Edmund Pettus Bridge and what happens in Selma on that attempt to march all the way to Montgomery. So my my point in saying this is is he admits that it it wasn't his own um, inherent leadership qualities or pursuit of justice that brought him to that moment. He's he's basically admitting, look, we were shocked into action, absolutely galvanized by the heroism and courage and brutality that we saw on on that bridge a week ago. Um, And for us, almost 56 years to 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 the day and that's why we we are we are going to do this uh right now and and so i i don't know that absent that kind of leadership that you saw from john lewis and of course everyone who was with him and everybody who preceded him and and by that same token i i don't think you get to hr1 the for the people act which is a you know next most significant landmark piece of voting rights legislation it just passed the House and is pending in the Senate without all of the courage and heroism that we've seen from so many, I mean, including Stacey Abrams, who, who everyone witnessed. I mean, if you want to talk about stolen elections, that is a stolen election. But for the hundreds of thousands of voters purged from the rolls in Georgia by the Secretary of State, who is both a contestant and the referee in the contest at hand. Um, she's, she's the governor of, of Georgia right now. I I think the outrage that we felt seeing the grace and, and heroism and courage with which she responded to, to that theft and her dedication to the people of Georgia and to the greater role of democracy. And you just opened up the show by reminding us all that all of that contributed to two democratic senators who had a chance to vote on a bill that is now law that will cut child poverty in half in the United States of America. Um, I, I, I think that's frankly what it takes. I don't know that there's a, a Democratic Party playbook or talking points that we employ because you're right. I think those in power will always shy away from the charged issues that could cost them their re-election or disappoint some significant part of the electorate. I think it always takes those in the streets, um, th- those who, who engage us, and draw our attention in a way that John Lewis or Stacey Abrams or others have, who then compel the country to act in a way that it otherwise absolutely would not. And for me, you know, personally, Colin Kaepernick and his willingness to put his career on the line and sacrifice that career for the greater good of his countrymen and women was, you know, one of the most profound acts of heroism that I saw. And to take all the scorn coming directly from the most powerful man on the face of the planet, you know, the president of the United States and and all the hatred from, from so many um, to do the right thing in a very lonely way um, that, that got my attention and that, that definitely connected the dots for me. So I, I think that's what's, what's needed, honestly.
0: So uh, kind of on, on that vein to circumstance, we are recording this during the week when the trials begun um, in Minnesota of the cop who killed George Floyd, And so you had this enormous outpouring and this real racial reckoning, which is still reverberating in a lot of ways. Not enough, we might argue, but that's still... But one of the things I thought didn't get enough attention in terms of the poisoning of the culture of this country by this former president was what happened in El Paso with the shooting. And so I wonder if you could both remind our listeners what happened there and why and then what did you learn from that the response to that and are there any other lessons to take from that
2: yeah i think the anyone in el paso could have told you that um we have a very serious threat in white nationalist terrorism in this country and and to remind everyone of just the very basic facts um someone ordered an ar-15 i'm sorry i I think it was actually an ak-47 uh, but, but a weapon designed for war, able to order it over the internet. Wow. Uh, when that weapon comes in, that person's mother calls the police to say, hey, my son's ordered this. I don't know what he needs with this thing. Can you help me out? Police tell her it's perfectly legal. Wow. He drives that weapon of war 600 miles to El Paso, Texas, chooses a Walmart on the Saturday before school opens. So grandparents, parents with their kids getting back to school supplies opens fire and, and murders 23 people with with that weapon um, and, and murdered them uh, in an effort to stop what he called an invasion. Wow. An invasion of Hispanics, invasion of Mexicans, invasion of uh, those who don't look like the majority in this country. And that word invasion is really important because it's the same word used by the president of the United States to describe Refugees and asylum seekers and immigrants coming to this country, That's right. and in a rally um, a few months before that shooting, or, or yeah, within within the year of that shooting, uh, at at an event in Florida, Trump says to the crowd, "How are we going to stop these folks? You know, this invasion of people that are coming across." Someone in the crowd yells out, "Shoot them!" Wow. And the crowd roars with laughter, and Donald Trump smiles, and um, essentially. Helps to inspire this person to commit this this act of terrorism and, and cold blooded murder and the manifesto that the the murderer the terrorist posted just echoes and reverberates with not only white nationalist uh, philosophy and, and beliefs but but really with with the president's mo in the four years he was in office and and the run up to office so um, what what we we understand. Uh, as systemic racism in in this country that is part of the criminal justice system, but is part of every other system in America. What we understand about the fact that people in communities of color, uh, so many feel like they have a target on their back. What we understand about the very threat to democracy itself that we saw realized on the 6th of January in 2021, where armed uh, supporters of the president trying to overthrow the the government and overturn a legitimately decided election march into the capital first time it's been breached since the war of 1812 literally with the confederate flag if you needed right. an expl- exactly. explanation right. that that was it people of el paso could have told you mm. uh all of this was was coming and 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 many tried to um but um you know i i, I i've got to say that i think there's a real temptation steve by by too many to take comfort in the fact that Joe Biden's been elected. You've had that transfer of power. We've gotten some good things done like this um, COVID relief bill and, and the impact it's going to have on, on children's poverty in America. All that being said, that that threat uh, represented by the shooting in El Paso, the insurrection on the 6th, um, the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Tatiana Jefferson and Botham John, and the, the list is too long to enumerate. That is, is very much still present. And I would argue, I would argue, especially because our attention's deflected right now, it is growing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think we do ourselves a great disservice if we don't take that seriously and understand that that big lie is metastasizing and it's engaging people, maybe not in, in, in obvious ways before us right now, but it will come back once more unless we take it seriously.
0: I think what we learned is that, you know, you mentioned Stacey Abrams, no work in Georgia, you know, which has a long history of anti-justice and equality and a long affinity to the white national supremacists. But what we learned is the way to overcome that is through expanding democracy, civic engagement, bringing more people into the process and winning and building political power. In Texas, one of the groups that is doing that work that talked about in my column in the nation is Texas organizing project. And we had seen the, um, photos with, you know, you with the top mask and t-shirt on out with them during the the get out the vote work. So can you talk a little bit about how you see their place in the universe of of Texas politics in terms of bringing about change and why you partner with them?
2: One of the most powerful things I've heard Stacey Abrams say is that the the challenge uh, of organizing in Georgia, of organizing in Texas, is not to persuade Republicans to become Democrats. And I know that there's a part of the Democratic Party that is monomaniacally focused on the white suburban voter. And um, and, and that voter, like every voter, is, is important. However, what, what part, part of, just part of Stacey Abrams' genius, is uh, talking about the need to persuade the non-voter to vote.
0: Right.
2: And, and the non-voter who's been the target of decades and generations of voter suppression and voter intimidation, um, state-sponsored voter suppression and voter intimidation, convincing that voter, persuading that voter that it is worth hoping and believing that there will be justice through democracy and taking the time to register despite all the obstacles in in that person's way or to vote despite all the obstacles in that person's way. TOP, the Texas Organizing Project, has been working on persuading non-voters to vote and to become civically and small d democratically engaged since 2009. And so, so much like the, the, the more than decade long effort that Stacey Abrams has led along with so many others in Georgia and nationally, th- there is a very similar effort in Texas. Those are the similarities. The differences are there are, más o menos, 10 million people in Georgia. There are 30 million in, in the state of Texas. This is yeah. a state that, that spreads over two different time zones um, and many different climates and, and almost states within the states, um, and is the hardest in the United States of America in which to, to vote. Um, mm-hmm. as, as bad as some of these other states are, Texas has perfected almost the science of stopping people, and not just any people, uh, people of color from participating in our democracy, whether it's the racial gerrymander, the 750 ballot place closures, you know, triple any other state's closures located in the fastest growing black and Latino neighborhoods, whether it's the voter ID laws um, or the fact that in the midst of a pandemic, not only did we not expand mail-in voting, but we limited absentee ballot drop-off locations to one per county. Think about a county like Harris with 5 million people, uh, one ballot drop-off location uh, for those who who don't want to get sick, at a time that the virus had claimed lives of 35,000 of our fellow Texans. So she serves both as inspiration and I think confirmation mm-hmm. of some of the great work that's taking place in Texas. And I can't think of a better group that ex- to exemplify that than the Texas Organizing Project.
0: You know, my, as I mentioned, my dad and, and nephew are in Houston. And when, in terms of how one voting place per county, I was trying to get there one time and I got lost and missed my exit on the on the freeway. I could not believe how long I was driving and I was still in Houston, in terms of the <laughs> geographic span of the whole thing. So. Yeah. It's
2: massive. It's ma- and, and we have no idea how many voters were dissuaded from participating in the last election because you know, t- to leave their homes in some cases without a vaccine and in a state that has minimal public health guidelines you know, it's to take your life into your hands uh, when so many other states obviously figured out, no-fault mail-in voting works, legitimate, um, no, no concerns about fraud, and keeps people safe. Um, that's what we're up against here in Texas.
1: And Beto, thanks. I wanted to uh, also thank you for introducing me to the word monomaniacally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Steve, I, I think you should use that word in your next essay and also your book. Uh, on our last episode, we did get to speak with one amazing Rep. Mary Gonzalez.
0: From El Paso.
1: But but we did get to talk to her, of course, about the failure of Republican leadership in last month's devastating historic winter storm, as well as the pandemic. Uh, As we all know, Ted Cruz had, during that time, crossed the border to Mexico to get away from it all and get some warmth, while you were fundraising for recovery efforts and running a virtual phone bank to contact senior citizens in Texas and connecting them with resources during that disaster. And um, that just sounded like an amazing effort and so needed. You had said on MSNBC relatively recently that Governor Greg Abbott's uh, recent lifting of the mask mandate in Texas was going to kill more Texans than have already died in the pandemic. What does the Republican response to both the storm and the pandemic say about their ability to govern?
2: So first of all, what what the governor has done by surrendering in the face of this pandemic after more than 50,000 of our our fellow Texans have been killed is going to guarantee the deaths of, of more of us. And we don't know how many more, and, and I don't know... Uh, You know, if it'll be more than have already died, but it'll be more than would have died otherwise, because what we know from the scientists and, and the doctors and the public health experts is that wearing a mask and keeping six foot distance and having spacing requirements within businesses and places of public accommodation all protect us and save lives. And the governor's order removes the mask mandate in Texas allows businesses to open up to 100% capacity. We're already seeing advertisements for nightclubs that are announcing. So uh, we're we're recording this on the 9th. Tomorrow is the 10th, which is the day that the governor's order goes into effect. So all across Texas, there are bars and nightclubs uh, holding mask-off parties where they're going to try to cram as many people without masks to celebrate this order as possible each one of these will be super spreading events. Um, And there's absolutely no good scientific or public health reason to do this, especially because the Biden administration has announced that every adult in America will have a vaccine by the end of May. So we can see the finish line. It's, it's, you know, it's right over there. We just have to hold on to this public health guidance for another couple of months. and, And we, we are there. But but he gave up and one can only guess as to motive, but this follows on the heels of the worst winter storm in Texas history that caused the most devastating disruption in power and water, meaning tens of millions of Texans could not reliably get warm, um, could not keep the the lights on and could not get safe drinking water. Dozens upon dozens of them have died as a result. Eleven year old boy froze to death in in his bed uh, next to his three-year-old brother. Uh, You know, a a Vietnam-era veteran died going out to his trunk truck to try to get uh, an extra oxygen bottle to keep himself alive. Um, And all of this happened because of the radical deregulation under Abbott's administration and previous Republican governors, the uh, inability to hold energy and electricity companies uh, accountable and provide the oversight necessary And Charlene, when you follow the money and you see that Greg Abbott took a million dollars just from one energy company, $400,000 just from one electricity utility, you can see the conflict of interest present there. So this this those dots
1: are pretty short to connect.
2: That's that's right. And so this order lifting all public health protections following the deaths of so many of our fellow Texans unnecessarily during this winter storm. May have been an effort to have us talk about that instead of what preceded it, um, and now uh, you know not to do his job for him. But he wants us talking about immigrants bringing COVID over into the United States. He's trying to blame uh, oh asylum seekers and frightened families for what is sure to be a spike in COVID infections, resulting not from those immigrants but from his lifting mm-hmm. of the mask mandate right. in totally. Texas. So you can't make this stuff up. It, yeah. it is it's 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 pretty it's pretty evil. Um, And it's happening right now in Texas. Our best defense, unfortunately, is going to be one another. And and those of us who choose to follow the mask mandate, those of our volunteers empowered by people who do the, the wellness check in calls with seniors and are now going door to door to register eligible seniors for the COVID vaccine to make sure that they get inoculated before they are in harm's way as well.
0: So we only um, have a few more minutes. So I just wanted to maybe close with a couple of short questions. Um, you, you got just Highlighted a lot of the problems with uh, Texas state leadership. You've had a very full past four years. I believe that you launched your gubernatorial in March of 2017. Do you have a a Do you have a timeline for figuring out the next steps in your? Uh, work your life um and, and or i guess i'll <laughs> be part bov is there any uh news you want to break on this podcast about the 2022 gubernatorial campaign
2: no news uh i, I think my challenge hopefully every person's challenges is, is how and where can i do the most good And the work that we're doing now in Texas—we mentioned some of the humanitarian work around the storm and around COVID, and getting folks vaccinated—but that's only part of what Powered by People does. Uh, We registered 196,000 Texans last year to vote. Um, We we did you know 75 million voter contact attempts. Um, It's it's one of, if not the largest. Um, organized efforts at improving the viability of our democracy in Texas and making sure that that everyone's got a seat at the table, uh, seeing just how profoundly powerful that can be by the recent example in in Georgia and in other states and in other eras uh, in in our history. I want to make sure that if if that's where I add the most value, if that's where I do the most good, um, that that we stay focused on that. And if there's a uh, a role as a candidate or to serve in some other capacity, you know, uh, we'll, we'll look at that at, at, at whatever point that makes sense. But right now, I, I really am very, very lucky to be doing this work with Powered by People. And then I'm also teaching a, a course at the LBJ School at UT and teaching at uh, Texas State in, in San Marcos. So my, my plate is full and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm very fulfilled by the work that I've got in, in front of me right now.
1: We're really, really thankful for that, for all the work that you're doing now. And we know you're a dad of three. So I bet your plate is full. (laughs) We would like to just ask you one last question. And it's a fun one. Like you said, the light is uh, at the end of the tunnel is coming up. The vast, vast majority of the country will get vaccinated. And I know I'm among many people who are looking forward to traveling, including maybe doing some much um, longer um, road trips, so we know that you are a musician you once played in a band if you were to plan a cross state tour what three artists are a must-have on your road trip playlist
2: oh wow <laughs> um okay I, i'm i'm gonna uh i'm gonna go with with some texas artists um willie nelson will always be number one on on my playlist um nice. no matter what, no matter what the the need or the cause I mean, he just he fits every occasion and has been he's been there for me at every moment in my life uh especially his music um joe ely uh who uh steven charlene you, you may or may not know but just a, a really powerful songwriter out of west texas um mm. out of the, the panhandle in the lubbock area um who I, i've just discovered recently in life mm. but just is is just phenomenal, and then I'm going to go to another Texan um, who uh, also has it always kind of fits the mood and and is is right there at the right moment. That's Beyonce, mm-hmm. and yeah. I know she's by the the people of Houston and the state of Texas. And uh, if I had Joe Ely, Willie Nelson, and Beyonce on that road trip, I would be set. You're good. See,
0: this is the future that's leadership that Texas right has to look forward to. So <laughs> great! Thank you so much for that. We really appreciate you making time. I know that you know, your time is limited, so we're going to let you go. Um, we really appreciate. It. We really enjoyed this conversation with you.
2: I enjoyed it as well.
0: Thank you really? for having me. Appreciate so Great
1: it. to talk to you.
0: Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thank you also to our great guest, Beto O'Rourke. And if you're not already following him on Twitter, you can follow Beto. His Twitter handle is at Beto O'Rourke, all one word, B E T O O R O U R K E. We'll link to it in the show notes. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P Tweets. And finding us on Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyandcolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco, we continue to shine a spotlight on the great leadership coming out of El Paso, Texas over these past two episodes And in the spirit of uh, Beto's road trip, until next time, keep the faith and keep playing in your head. Willie Nelson's On the Road Again.